welcome to episode 237 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 3rd of July 2023. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. How's it going? Graham. Good evening. And Will. Hello. Let's get straight on with our discoveries then. Will, you've got a follow-up on your domain registrar dilemma. Yeah, so uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Google were shutting down their domain registrar and were forcibly moving everybody to Squarespace. So I was looking to move my domain registrations somewhere else. The first one that I came across was Cloudflare, and we asked listeners to send in recommendations of alternatives that they have tried. And loads of people got back in touch with us and recommended a variety of places. Cloudflare was recommended a few times by various Ooh. people. Yeah, I deleted those emails. <laughs> <laughs> there were a few others on there that I hadn't heard of for a while. Gandhi, for example. Oh, uh, I was aware that they existed. They're still going. They were sold oh, recently, right. but they're still there. I looked at them. That looked okay. Uh, Ventura, who are a company out in Australia, so I ruled that out. And Porkbun whose name, for some reason, passes my test, but I'm not quite sure why. Yeah, this is ridiculous. So yeah, name cheap is unacceptable, but fucking pork bun is fine. I don't make the rules. <sighs> Did you officially get a, an email from Google saying that we're hoist, foisting your domain off to someone else yet? I have still not had that email. That is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I went with pork bun, and it was very easy to move them across. Google do make it quite easy to export across. Pork bun make it easy to import those domains as well. One thing they didn't do that Cloudflare did was duplicate all the DNS entries. So I had to copy those across. It's not a big deal. But I've now moved all but my main domain across. I'm worried that if I move my main domain out of Google, they will shut down my grandfathered free Google Domains account, and I'll end up having to pay for my workspace. So I don't want to do that yet, but I will do. But long story short, pork bun seem okay so far. The tools look basic, but they work. They've got an API so you can push updates. They've got a DD client plugin, but you have to install it from GitHub, not the distro, so you can update your dynamic DNS. So far, so good. I will report back in the future, but I don't expect there to be any problems. So, but thank you for everybody who wrote in with recommendations. It was very useful. Failing Mastodon plus intercaps plus screen readers. What's all this about? So, I have always done this back in Twitter and in Mastodon, where I have put a capital letter at the start of every word. Well, actually, usually not the first one, but the second one, etc. Because I like to read it that way because I'm a pedant and that is what suits me. And it turns out that this is actually good for people who are blind and using a screen reader software. It can distinguish those words and read them out. And I just thought, I'm brilliant and I didn't even realise that. There you go. Hang on, I don't understand what you mean by this. Well, if I was to say, hashtag Phelan is brilliant and I would capitalise the F, the I and the B then that would be intercaps or camel case, people sometimes call it. Although I'm never sure whether it's camel case or snake case or whatever, but the first letter of each word capitalize it. And that means the screen reading software can actually distinguish that and read it out to the blind person, not just a big jumble pile of shite like... Ah. Oh, okay. Or you could just not use hashtags. Yeah, but I mean, come on, people use them all the time. Not me. Hashtag winning. Oh, God's sake, you're just old people. I'm I'm with it, I think. Or <laughs> I used to be, and now it's not cool, but I don't care. Anyway, just do that now. That's what people should do. So there, help people out. All right, and Python tools hidden in the STD lib. 
Okay, standard library. I was trying to make it short. It's not an STT. It's <laughs> the standard library. So I have only ever really used the inbuilt web server there. It's dead handy if you're on a box, you don't have access to any software, you can't install something, but Python is there. It was always a great way. It was to go into the directory of the stuff you wanted and start up the simple HTTP server. Well, there's a whole load of other ones, and this article is quite cool in the fact that a guy rip-grepped all the way through it looking for, there's a terminology in Python where you set a if name equal to main, it's using the underscore, which is the double underscore, and it's a way for a thing to kind of advertise the fact that it can actually be run from standard input. And that allows various modules to actually be called. So I have one in my aliases file where I have a pretty JSON output the inbuilt JSON comes out terrible. So you can actually run it through the JSON library part of Python and it can spit it out in a you know much nicer architected way. And there are a whole load of them that he's found. Things for doing like asynchronous IO. There's a cool one for doing tokenizing, which is where you parse through a Python library. You can see what the actual interpreter makes of the various statements in it. There's a whole load of them there. I haven't tried vast majority of them, but this has given me a bit of a challenge to actually w- walk through the list. And anybody who's interested, I think it'd be a bit of fun to try out because if you've got no way to install stuff on a server, if you're locked down or whatever, and there is Python there, you have a fair whack of tools that you may not even be aware of. Can we talk about the STD library? Like you go along and <laughs> gonorrhea's out. <laughs> can you get a shot for that? Yes, yes, you can. Graham, node editing in Blender 3.6 LTS. Yeah, so Blender 3.6 was recently released. So Blender's the the modeling 3D animation studio powerhouse, amazing open source application that used to have a really complicated UI and still does. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it used to have one too. (laughs) But I used to be into 3D graphics. This is like in the mid-early 90s. I had a legitimate copy of Lightwave on the Amiga and spent a long time actually messing with stuff after I think Imagine 3D came for free on a cover disc. Anyway, I haven't played with it for a long time, but I wanted to have a go with Blender. It's been a few years, actually. I think the Linux Voice cover dropping thing for the crowdfunding was the last big thing I did, and that wasn't that big. But what's really put me off is the way that a lot of things now have become parametric, which sounds complicated. So instead of kind of modeling things like by editing meshes and dragging with the mouse on points and vertices in different viewpoints on a view, you can do this kind of like programmatically, but it's it's like um, a modular it's like a modular view where you can change parameters and change the connections between things. And Blender uses this for materials and shaders and you can use it to change the shape of objects and I finally got my head around a little part of this and it's really amazing and and also really not that difficult and so I've spent quite a bit of time learning the new user interface which I have to say is a lot better the trouble is that it's so flexible the view can still be split so many times and each different panel can have a different function and each function has its own toolbar and the toolbar isn't always displayed compared to how wide it is. And it is still complicated, but it's a lot easier than it used to. And I got some great results. But the node editing, it's just so powerful. So you can create like a 
It's a bit like a modular synth where you wire the output from oh. your hobby. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> I didn't mean to say that, actually, but it is a lot like that. You can have an object and then you can drop in a box that says, I want the angle that a face is going. And you can put that into a, a, something that will change the colour of a face or a material. And you can put that into something that will change how reflective it is or how it emits light. And you can create these amazing materials just by graphically linking and interlinking things and interlinking things with other things or downloading a material from somewhere else and it's it's really amazing that this is open source software so really this is a shout out to blender and how far it's come i now understand how normal people feel when you start going on about audio stuff Graham. <laughs> just everything you said was just over uh-huh. my head there but uh, no, it, I think we do need to give Blender more love because that is, we've said it before, it is a, a totally open source bit of software that is not an also-ran. It's, it's a proper industry standard, isn't it? It's like properly up there with the proprietary tools. It's not just a sort of, oh, well, a, a cheap alternative, a free alternative, or whatever. It is a proper professional tool and a real flagship bit of open source software so you're right to give it more love even if i have no fucking clue what you said in any of that well it's like that thing that i found i found a video of people converting the dinosaurs in jurassic park into what we really think they looked like and your man was using blender all the way through it it was really cool i thought oh blender i mean who cares about dinosaurs but yeah blender was in there it's a it is really good and it was nice to see it in a a real world usage by a a non-foss person yeah and i'm sure that there's thousands of others or maybe hundreds i don't know it's a pretty specialized skill there's probably thousands i don't know millions millions bound to be yeah all running on linux Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. If you work in security or IT and your company has Okta, this message is for you. Have you noticed that for the past few years, the majority of data breaches and hacks you read about have something in common? It's employees. Hackers absolutely love exploiting vulnerable employee devices and credentials, but it doesn't have to be this way. Imagine a world where only secure devices can access your cloud apps. In this world, phished credentials are useless to hackers, and you can manage every OS, even Linux, from a single dashboard. Best of all, you can get employees to fix their own device security issues without creating more work for IT. The good news is, you don't have to imagine this world. You can just start using Collide. Collide is a device trust solution for companies with Okta, and it ensures that if a device isn't trusted and secure, it can't log into your cloud apps. So support the show and visit collide.com slash late night Linux to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for various amounts on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed of either just this show or all the shows in the Late Night Linux family. And if you want to get in contact, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Will, what's Quodem? Well, I think we filed this one under I'm not having a midlife crisis, you're having a midlife crisis. I was poking around looking for some bulletin boards the other day and trying to find a nice terminal that felt like the good old days of bulletin boards. And Quodem was what came along. Quodem is a re-implementation of QModem. And if you are of a certain age, QModem will almost certainly be the terminal that you used to access bulletin boards. 
and this is just a yeah a, a public domain, so not strictly open source, but all the sources out there. Re-implementation supports all the same feature set, and it's just a really lovely feeling terminal text-based application that supports all of that wonderful ANSI art that you may remember from logging into bulletin boards. It's got a whole feature set which nobody really cares about, but uh, it's just a really good implementation of a ANSI terminal. It's relatively up to date. There was a push to their GitHub, I think, maybe a year ago or something like that. So considering the sort of technology we're talking about, that's, that's pretty up to date. Was that to sort out like two year date version versus four year date <laughs> yeah, version? Quite possibly. <laughs> quite possibly. But yeah, it's just it's just a nice, easy to use, nice terminal. It doesn't need any kind of X extensions either. So it will run. If you can get a Linux box to boot to just a terminal, then you can use this. And you know, it supports all of those graphical uh, extensions, probably EGA or something. It supports Z modem and Kermit and things like that, all all that good old-fashioned stuff. And feeding on from that, as I was poking around looking for things to now Telnet into, because uh, you know very few of these bulletin boards have actual phone lines connected to them anymore, I came across the telnetbbsguide.com, which is a list of 977 bulletin boards which are still online, which you can still connect to with SSH and Telnet, which Quodem supports. So you can you know, use that and, and connect up to these uh all of these bulletin boards, and the scene is seemingly still alive. In the last 30 days, there have been eight new bulletin boards added to the BBS Guide <laughs> website, which is... Not as much as 10. But eight more than I expected. <laughs> okay, so that's it, fair. It's pretty good. Any boards or posts on boards? Oh! Fair point, fair point. But that's that's not what it's all about. It's just, it's lovely to see there are still people out there who care enough about bulletin boards to bother setting one up. Even if each one's only got one user, it's nice to tell it in and see some of those familiar login prompts and the way that the page flow goes through. It's something very uh, nostalgic about it. And I recommend checking it out. If you've got a spare hour, go and just tell it in to some of these bulletin boards. There's an Amiga one um, as well. So you should go definitely check that out. A spare error is that how long it takes to log in? Yeah, <laughs> I, I can I can link this to an ESP device as well oh, because God. I've got on my Amiga. There's this ESP embedded device you can create that attaches to a serial port, and there's a firmware called ZI modem or Z modem that you put on the ESP, and it basically connects to your Wi-Fi but simulates the entire AT mm. modem command set and you can use that to Telnet from your Amiga or Commodore 64 or even to any of those BBSs. But I didn't know about this general list, so I'm definitely going to try it. There's even an Amstrad one on there. Well, my discovery is there's a Phoronix article, Steam on Linux use steady for June. Around 40% of Linux gamers are using the Steam Deck. And this is just about the latest Steam survey. And that 40% of Linux gamers using Steam Deck really jumped out at me because we know that they've sold at least a million Steam Decks. And so if you assume that they've probably sold more now than a million, and some people will have installed Windows or whatever. So let's just say for argument's sake, there's a million Steam Decks running Linux out there. That means, and I worked this out using maths, there are two and a half million Linux gamers on Steam. That is a lot of people gaming on Linux. Yeah. 
I reckon there's more because I constantly ignore those survey requests and I've had two or three mm. on the Steam Deck. I must be catching up for you now because I think I've had about four or five of them. <laughs> and I always <laughs> answer them like, yes, yes, take my results. I think it's very positive. And also, I mean, it's I know it's the Steam sales at the moment, but the Steam Deck is a 10% discount and it's still top of the top sellers by revenue. And it has been off and on for like a whole year or longer. So they must be selling a lot of them. I know that the revenue on a device like that is going to eclipse other games, but it's still huge. Yeah, and every Steam Deck sold is a potential Linux user, Yeah, which is good. Will, ESP Home iBoost. Yeah, a bit of a cryptic name on this one. ESP Home I've talked about before, surprise, surprise, which is an alternative to like the Tasmotors of this world. It's a standard image that you could flash onto an ESP8266 or an ESP32, and it will integrate with Home Assistant very easily. So that's part A. This is the base on which it is built. Part B is if you've got solar panels on your house, there's a reasonable chance that you've got some sort of solar diverter, which is actually a box of tricks with a clamp that goes around your main incoming electricity feed, and it monitors how much electricity you are exporting at any one point in time. And the other half of it connects up to your immersion heater in your hot water tank. And instead of sending AC full three kilowatts of power down to your immersion heater, it sends DC and it modulates it to be more or less the same as what's going out of your house. So in other words, this is a way to dynamically adjust how much water heating power you're using based on what is effectively spare electricity from your solar panels. Oh, wow, that is really cool. It is very cool. The upshot of this is that you can eliminate all gas usage, for example, from your um, home during the summer months. You can heat all of your water during the, the summer through this sort of free electricity. So all very good. Now, one of these boxes normally is there are a variety of, of brands. One of them is called a solar iBoost, and it costs about 400 quid, and it sits in your airing cupboard and connects between the electricity and the immersion heater. It's all automatic. You don't have to manage it. But where's the fun in that? What you want to be able to do is draw graphs and control this thing from software. So the company that make the Solar iBoost also make a thing called a Buddy. And this hooks up to the same 868 MHz band. It listens to the messages from the two devices, from the sender on your outgoing electricity and from the device in your airing cupboard and shows you on a screen what is happening at any one point in time, how much power is being used, and allows you to manually enable the electricity to heat the water. But nobody wants to manually do stuff when they've got Home Assistant. So for the last probably couple of years, people have been working on reverse engineering the radio protocol on this device to try and make it so that you can control it from software. And about, I don't know, a month ago, this project landed and it works perfectly. So in the circumstances where you have solar panels, you have a solar iBoost, you have Home Assistant, and you know how to flash an ESP8266 with specific software, then this is the project for you. You had me at free hot water, man. <laughs> See the immersion, is it a special immersion that runs in DC mode? No, it's uh, it's they're all the same. It's just basically a long bit of wire which gets hot when you pass current through it. So it works in DC mode just as well as it works in AC mode. You need significantly more power electronics to run it in DC mode because of the way that electricity works. So this box that plugs into your air and cupboard is quite big and has got a fan in it. Wow. 
but it's still it seems worth it to me because you get effectively free hot water now the downside to all of this is that with octopus energy you get paid 15p per kilowatt hour for energy exported and you buy gas at 7p per kilowatt now so it's actually twice as cost efficient to just burn gas to heat your water and sell electricity but that's what the man wants you to do and i say fight the power use free electricity <laughs> so what you're burning toaster ovens in the back garden with gas <laughs> but what about the efficiency though like it might be 7p per kilowatt of gas but like which one is more efficient i think there's maths to be done there there is maths to be done but generally speaking a modern boiler which mine is not can be up to about 90 percent efficient on the other hand on the electric side the electricity heating the water is 100 percent efficient but you've got to add all of the power electronics into the mix so that probably drops a little bit but not very much so efficiency pure efficiency electricity is a better choice or you could use that electricity to power a heat pump like I have. I mean, I don't have the solar bit, but heat pumps are three times as efficient as a gas mm. heater. Well, roughly. A heat pump powered hot water tank will cost thousands and thousands of pounds. This solution will cost maybe 500 quid. Well, I had no heating in my house. and We had fireplaces in all the rooms. Yeah, it's all complicated economics and stuff. But uh, I had no idea that you could effectively get free hot water i'm very interested in that i'm gonna to have to talk to you off air about that will i think yeah okay this episode is sponsored by factor now that we're at the height of summer you might be looking for wholesome convenient meals to support sunny active days factor can help you fuel up fast with flavorful and nutritious ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door you'll save time eat well and stay on track reaching your goals with factor skip the trip to the grocery store and skip the chopping, prepping, and cleaning up too. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are ready in just two minutes, so all you have to do is heat them up and enjoy. Too busy running around during the day to think about lunch? Keep your energy up with lunch to go. Effortless, wholesome meals like grain bowls and salad toppers that are ready to eat when you're on the go. No microwave required. My two-and-a-half admins co-host Jim tried Factor and said the meals were quick and easy to prepare and liked that there was plenty of variety. So support the show and go to factormeals.com slash late night Linux 50 and use code late night Linux 50 to get 50% off. That's code late night Linux 50 at factormeals.com slash late night Linux 50 to get 50% off. All right, Graham, generating music from DevUrandom with Linux Wave. Please tell me it creates... Uh, Vaporwave style music. Oh, if only it did. Probably if you put it into chat GPT, that would be cool. You could. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit of a. I don't want to say it's a joke application because it doesn't really make music you'd like to listen to. Justin Bieber. <laughs> it uses any kind of sort, any device source on the system. Um, it recommends uh, Dev U Random. Well, Bieber would be Dev Null, I guess, wouldn't he? <laughs> mm. You could compare it to the output to random and, you know, prove the difference. But really, it creates this kind of melody out of the random numbers in, using a very simple monophonic kind of sine wave note sound. You can't change that at all. But you can change the scale of the notes that it generates. You can change the rate that the notes are generated. You can change the number of channels in the output file. It will output as a WAV. 
Um, you can say how long you want it to be. And it's pretty interesting. The output reminds me a lot of the, what you'd expect computers to sound like, you know, in like 1960s sci-fi films, mm. you know. And it's quite good for generating that kind of output. You could kind of leave it on and joke people that your computer is HAL 9000 or something. <laughs> but it's a really well-written app. It's got a great set of options for changing the output. And it may be the source of some kind of inspiration. And it's definitely interesting if you want to hear what random music sounds like. I find it quite funny, Phelim, that your go-to terrible music, in quotes, is Justin Bieber, who was around about 20 years ago. <laughs> what? <laughs> it shows how not down with the kids you are. Bieber was around 20 years ago. No, he isn't. He couldn't be. 20? No. All right, well, his big hit, Baby, was released in 2010, so that's 13 years ago, so I was a little bit out. But nevertheless, you are very much not down with the kids, Fanim. Oh, that's fine. I'm down at 1994 and earlier. It's all good. No, you should have said Miley Cyrus, who is now relevant again with her great new album, Newish. Who? <laughs> Billy Ray what now? <laughs> yeah, Billy Ray's daughter. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, I think she sings about an achy, breaky heart. Ah, uh, that sounds about right. <laughs> Let's do some feedback then. An anonymous person says, I just listened to episode 226 and have a suggestion. You don't need any additional plugins for anti-banner stuff. Ublock Origin, which you're very likely to be using already, can get rid of them with a few additional filter lists that are off by default. Go into the settings, filter lists, and enable everything in the annoyances group. I haven't seen a single cookie banner since those lists appeared, which was soon after the GDPR itself was introduced. They also strip a lot of other craft and make the web much cleaner. Now, Will, you were quite excited about this, and so was I. I've done it, I presume you have. I haven't noticed a huge difference, I must say. Yeah, and I'd forgotten that I'd switched it on. I, I switched it on maybe, I don't know, two, three weeks ago, maybe. Now, the first time I switched it on, I went through all the settings, drilled down, toggled all the boxes, and then checked it was all okay, and came out and went back in, and they'd all turned themselves off again. So it's possible, although unlikely, that it's not actually enabled. Ah, that might be why I keep seeing these annoying banners then. I might have to check that. Well, the, yes, but the other thing is, I have since checked that I've switched it all on, and I have got them all enabled, and I'm still seeing things. That said... Maybe I'm seeing like very specific ones, and I've just forgotten about the horror that is these cookie banners, and like maybe they're just faded out of memory. I honestly can't remember whether I see them anymore or not. So I will keep an eye on it over the next few days and, and see what happens. Nevertheless, it's a nice feature. It isn't obvious. You have to go digging. So do check it out. If you're using Adblock, do check it out. Yeah, and if you fail him, who doesn't trust Ublock Origin for some random reason, then you're shit out of luck. No, I just think it's a really bad idea to do it like that. But yeah, no, Piehole is pain in the arse because half the time websites just don't work. RT Archives can't watch any of the videos that they produced like decades ago because they don't allow it. It's really annoying. Just use Ublock, it'll be fine. Pretty sure it won't be. <laughs> Phil says... The story of facial recognition being used to accuse someone reminded me of the UK post office scandal, where a bunch of people got fired for theft due to what the proprietary software said. Lost careers, prison time, false confessions and suicides occurred because of this. 
And yeah, that's a good point, actually. That was a huge scandal. And it was down to this dodgy like point of sale software that said a bunch of people had stolen money and just ruined lives. And yeah, just yet another argument against proprietary software and for open source software. I expect there's more to come on this post office story. Um, Fujitsu, who were the main contractor, seem to have been allegedly in cahoots with the government to keep it hush-hush. So I wouldn't be surprised if there is more to come on this, and rightfully so. So for the rest of us non-British people who don't know about this, is this a recent thing? or it's Over the last f- 10 years, 5 years, just a, a bunch of people running post offices, postmasters they called them, were accused of stealing loads of money because the software running on their point-of-sale terminals, effectively, just fucked up. Wow. And a bunch of innocent people were prosecuted. And, you know, imagine that. Post offices generally are sort of the the hub of the community, aren't they? Like, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They, people are really trusted, generally, running the post office. And it, it's just a huge scandal. It's, it's terrible. Ah, that's pretty shocking, though. Yeah, it, it's a bit like that thing where... They say you shouldn't let a computer make a decision where a person's life is involved. Well, yeah, if nobody's auditing this stuff, it's kind of criminal, all right? Yeah, and if it's all just a black box that is proprietary software that you're just literally not allowed to even look at, then shit like this is bound to happen eventually. And there's no accountability. That's the thing. If you don't know what it is, how can you have any accountability? So Jeremy wrote in to say, I wanted to give another shout out for Clonezilla that you mentioned a few episodes ago. We recently used it to migrate machines from a dying Blade Center Zen cluster to a completely new cluster running the latest Proxmox. We migrated CentOS, Windows and Ubuntu machines near flawlessly. Some were even encrypted with Lux, others with VeraCrypt. I think we ended up with only rebuilding one machine out of approximately 170. Clonezilla saved me hundreds and hundreds of hours of rebuilding by migrating via cloning them across the network. Well, I was a bit sceptical, wasn't I? And I said, just use DD. But uh, I think I have to eat my words after uh, reading this. It seems like Clonezilla really is an amazingly useful tool. I don't think you should have to eat your words. I think you should actually have to do a few Windows installs back to back. That'd be the way to do it. Oh, do I have to do all the updates as well? Yes. <laughs> right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when who knows what's going to be happening. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.